Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. Book of Acts, we're at the very end of chapter 15. Acts 15, beginning in verse 36. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 16 and verse 15 this morning. So Acts 15, 36 through 16, 15. If you are using the blue ESV Bibles in the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 924. The title of our sermon is Division and Direction, and the keywords for our worshipers and training are um, separate, sovereign, and promise. As we've said repeatedly, one way that you could uh, summarize the book of Acts is by saying that God keeps His promises, and He's building His kingdom. Jesus told His apostles in Acts 1.8 that, that His Spirit would come upon them and would give them power to take the message of His death and resurrection to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts 2, we saw starting in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and then spreading ever outward the apostles and the early church bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus and His kingdom. And the Lord added daily to the number of those who were being saved through that message. And we saw in particular beginning in Acts 8 and then again in 10 and 11 and following that it wasn't just Jews that God was saving but Gentiles as well. And so this increase in the people of God, in particular the coming together of Jews and Gentiles, wasn't without its problems. Because if you recall, if you think about your Old Testaments, ever since the days of Abraham, thousands of years before Christ, a couple thousand years before Christ, um, and especially since the days of Moses, maybe 1,500 1,400 years before Christ, there were very clear expectations that the people of God had regarding the identity of the people of God. Who belonged to God? Who belonged to the people of God and who didn't? What did it mean to be a true follower of Yahweh? Was one obligated to keep the Mosaic Law? They had very clear understanding of how these questions were to be answered for many, many, many years in the life of the people of God. But last week we saw the apostles and the early church leaders come to debate this very question in light of some troublemakers who had gone to Antioch. Because now with the widespread inclusion of Gentiles into the covenant community of faith, the question was still being asked, Not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. Must they keep the law? And in particular, must they be circumcised in order to be saved? Well, the conclusion was that since God had been giving His Spirit to both Jews and Gentiles, making no distinction between them, since He had blessed the ministry of Barnabas and Paul among the Gentiles, and since the law had always proved to be an unbearable yoke for the Jews who couldn't save themselves through law-keeping, then of course the Gentiles were not to be obligated to keep the law 
either in order to be saved. It was, after all, by the grace of the Lord Jesus that Gentiles and Jews were to be saved, not by law-keeping. And so they, they, they make these arguments and they summarize it all and they say, so we shouldn't put God to the test and trouble these Gentiles who are turning to the living God. And by putting God to the test, they mean we shouldn't lay the, the yoke of the law upon these new believers. However, we should instruct them that while they don't have to become Jews, they do need to turn from idolatry and its practices in which essentially all Gentile cities would have been steeped at this time. And so having settled theologically, even if not fully functionally, the growing unrest that was troubling the early church regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles and Jews into one community, Paul, in our passage this morning, becomes quite eager to visit the cities where he had traveled previously in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. He wanted to see the saints there. He wanted to encourage them and uh, give them these decisions from Jerusalem. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see Paul set out on his second missionary journey. It will take him as far as Philippi today, and in the coming weeks, we will see him travel through uh, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus before returning to Antioch in chapter 18.22. And so again, in the coming weeks, to keep it straight in your head, I recommend checking out uh, either online or possibly in the back of your Bible those maps that give you the geographic sense of where these cities are located and how Paul makes his journey through them. Um, But what I want to do now is read our passage Um, and then we will give it an outline, a very brief and simple outline this morning, and then we'll get to work. Acts 15, beginning to verse 36, we're going to read through verse 15 of the next chapter. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and uh, (coughs) um, Cilicia strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And there, or, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. There are just two parts to this sermon this morning. First, beginning in verse 36 of chapter 15 through verse 5 of chapter 16, we'll see the missionary team divided and then new ones reformed. And then second, in verses 6 through 15 of chapter 16, we'll see the Sovereign Lord continue to direct and bless Paul's ministry. So, through verse 5, we'll see the division of the missionary team and the new ones formed. And then from 6 through 15, we'll see God continue to direct and bless Paul's ministry. So look with me in the first place beginning in verse 36 where we see the teams divided and or the team divided and new ones reformed. Last week we saw Paul and Barnabas in Syrian Antioch. Uh, verse 35 says that they were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord to the brothers and sisters there. And then in our passage this morning Luke tells us that after some days Paul initiates a conversation with Barnabas. He indicates that he wishes to return to the cities uh, that they had previously visited. He wanted to see the disciples. He wanted to proclaim uh, to them, uh, it seems from verse 4 and 16, that um, he wanted to give them an update about this decision from Jerusalem. And this was something that Barnabas, we can rightly assume, was very eager to do himself. And yet, there is a problem that arises perhaps immediately. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul did not think this was wise. Now, it might be, uh, if you've either not been with us or don't remember every single detail of the book of Acts, you might be thinking, what is he talking about? Uh, Back in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were sent off by the church in Antioch, and they had taken this man, John Mark, with them. We see that in 13.5. 
They had gone to the island of Cyprus. They ministered there. There was the proconsul was converted. Well, after, after Cyprus, they sailed up to Perga in Pamphylia. But Luke tells us in 1313 that John Mark had left them and gone to Jerusalem. Now, Luke makes no other comment about it there in the chapter. And so you could easily read it and assume it wasn't a big deal. He had perhaps an emergency and had to return home. Whatever the case, um, he makes no comment about it there. But now in chapter 16, it's apparent that it actually was some kind of an issue for the missionaries. Paul, even now, is not eager to take Mark with them on this second trip. Evidently, he saw, at least Paul saw Mark's desertion, or he saw his departure as a desertion. Right? Luke uses the word withdrawal here, but based on the sharp disagreement that arises between Paul and Barnabas, it's clear that, that Paul had very clear thoughts and very strong feelings about the matter. And so Paul and Barnabas sadly cannot come to an agreement, and they separate from one another. Barnabas, the encourager, likely just eager to give Mark a second chance, takes Mark and he sails to Cyprus where they begin or where they had begun the first time. Now we learn virtually nothing of their ministry after this. But Paul is whom we follow. Paul, we're told here, he recruits Silas that we saw last week from the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Silas, they head up through Syria and Cilicia. They strengthen the churches in uh, Tarsus, Derbe, Iconium, Lystra, and Pisidian Antioch. And then really the rest of Acts follows Paul's ministry. Now in this direction where they where they take off, we see um, they come to, to, to Derby and Lystra. And Paul and Silas pick up a fellow traveler, Timothy. Um, and this is the Timothy that Paul will eventually set up in Ephesus to lead the church there, to whom he addresses two epistles. Now, what we're told about Timothy is pretty straightforward. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and he was spoken well of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. And he had uh, become a disciple of Jesus, um, it seemed, through some interaction that Paul had had, either with him directly or, or his family, or just through the disciples that were being made there in Lystra from his previous trips there. And now on Paul's third pass through the city, Timothy joins him on his travels. But there's a problem. He's half Jewish and half Greek. His Greek heritage, um, contrary to what would have been expected and uh, understood to have been the case for him, his Greek heritage had left him uncircumcised. Now, if you were here last week or know anything about Acts 15, you're thinking, why is that a problem? Didn't we just spend 35 verses in Acts 15 saying that no one, Jew or Gentile, has to be circumcised in order to be saved? In fact, circumcision can't save you. Why does it matter then that Timothy isn't circumcised? Don't we also have the letter to the Galatians that makes essentially the same point? Well, yes, but this 
is a different issue. Paul does not have Timothy circumcised because Timothy needed to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved, Jewish or Gentile. He circumcised him in order to maximize the effect of his ministry among the Jews in the cities they were planning to visit. Right? We see that in verse 4, he shares the decisions from Jerusalem with the churches that they visit. And yet, he realizes that having half-Jewish, uncircumcised Timothy with him would be a non-starter for so many of the Jews that they would encounter along the way. Paul concludes it would be an unnecessary and likely insurmountable stumbling block to these dear people that he wanted to encourage and minister to. And so for the sake of gospel ministry, Paul requires the circumcision of Timothy, to which Timothy, kind of astonishingly, consents. But the result of their ministry, right? What's the result? It's the strengthening of the churches. The increase of the number of disciples. And so there's our, there's our division and our reforming of new teams. Paul and Barnabas separate. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas and acquires Timothy. And the churches are strengthened. What do we make of this? Well, ministry is messy. Paul and Barnabas had such an argument over how to proceed regarding John Mark that they separated from one another. Paul and Barnabas separated from one another. This serves as a warning to us all. Think of all that Paul and Barnabas had been together been through together at this point. Barnabas. Barnabas had vouched for Paul after his conversion before the apostles in chapter 9, 27. Remember the apostles were like, nah, I know who this guy is. Barnabas says, no, yep, I know him better. He's legit. They had worked together to help the fledgling church get started in Antioch. They were sent out from Antioch as missionaries to plant and strengthen other churches. They traveled uh, likely for about two years together during this time. They covered maybe 1,400 miles. They saw countless conversions, multiple churches planted. They were chased out of one city after another. They evaded multiple conspiracies to murder them. Paul was attacked and nearly stoned to death in Lystra. And they had combated the troublesome men from Judea in Acts 15. They had served as crucial voices of testimony in the Jerusalem council. And they did that together. And yet, over this decision about John Mark, they separate. Two pillars of the church. Perhaps the the most famous missionaries of the Christian church separate. Over what? One guy? This young man, John Mark, his his leaving them in Pamphylia was something that Barnabas was willing to overlook, but it was something that Paul thought warranted serious concern. 
For us, it might be helpful if Luke had just said, hey, here's what he did. But he didn't. And so, in some sense, the point isn't, well, whom do we blame? It's not clear to me where or how or even if we should attempt to lay blame. Right? Is, is Barnabas naive? Is Paul holding a grudge? I don't know that we can know. But the import of what we can know about this and what we need to know about this is something like this. I said it earlier, ministry, at least at times, is messy and hard. And we should beware of the little things. Calvin gives this word to us. Unless the servants of Christ are intent on keeping a short lookout, many chinks are open to Satan, by which he may steal in to disturb the harmony among them. Now Luke doesn't spend much time on this issue, but this separation should trouble us. It should sadden us. Calvin calls it a tragic breach between good men whose partnership had been forged by the Holy Spirit. So this should make us hesitant. It should make us hesitant probably to enter ministry. It should make us hesitant to assume that we know what is best. Hesitant to, assu- to insist on our own way. There's more that this division and separation does for us, but I want to come back to that at the end. And I want to I come back to John Mark later, but I want to make another observation about this passage before we move on to verses 6 through 15. And this one is a bit more hopeful. Ministry is messy, but God strikes a straight blow with a crooked stick. Right, we, we may not know who was mostly or wholly at fault here, Mark or Barnabas or Paul. But we do know who was overseeing the whole entire affair. Who was guiding it to its divine ends. We're not told, as I said, about Barnabas and Mark's ministry. We don't know what came of it. But I don't think there's any reason that we are to assume that it was wholly different than the ministry of Paul's. The churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Isn't that something? The heartbreaking separation of these two missionary juggernauts leads somehow in the providence of God to the strengthening of the faith and the increase of disciples. So this does not give us any license to be dissentious, to be quarrelsome, and yet it still gives us hope in the God who works. And the question for us is this, what hard providence or providences have settled in your life? What difficulties rest on your shoulders at this moment? What sorrows fill your heart? What painful words fill your ears? And what blinding tears fill your eyes? Take heart, my friend. Neither your sins 
nor your sorrows can overthrow the will of the Lord Jesus and his promises. Nothing will prevent him from advancing his kingdom. Nothing will prevent him from strengthening his people. Nothing will prevent him from adding to their number those who are being saved. The path ahead of you may not lie as you had hoped. You may go forward without that trusted companion. Heading in a different direction than you thought you would initially go. But if you will seek the Lord's will... Entrust yourself to Him. Put yourself wholly in His hands. You can know that there is a blessing. There is blessing off in the distance. Maybe it's a miles off or perhaps just around the corner. We can't know until we get there, but we know that God has not been caught off guard by the difficult providences that have come upon you, even if you have brought them upon yourself. And so those are some things that we need to see from these two paragraphs here in the end of Acts 15 and the beginning of Acts 16, is that ministry is, is messy and difficult, and we need to be careful that we don't insert our own will into the matter. And yet, amidst the difficulty, God is still working for you and in you and through you. Second point then, verses 6 through 15. Here we see sort of the same thing. The sovereign Lord continues to work through His people. In particular, we see Him working through Paul. From Antioch in Pisidia, um, they head uh, north and west through Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had forbidden them from going into Asia which would have been southwest of Antioch there. Now, how the Holy Spirit forbids them, Luke doesn't say. Is it an interning compulsion not to go? Is it a a, a word of prophecy? Is it sort of like the man in Macedonia? Is it a vision in the night? We're not told how he did it, simply that he did it, but we're also told why he did it. Because he had somewhere else for him to be. They attempt to go to Asia. That doesn't work. They attempt to go into Bithynia, but the, the Spirit, this time called the Spirit of Jesus, prevents them from entering Bithynia as well to the northeast. So they pass by Mysia and they stop in the port city, Troas, which if you look at a map, that's just right directly across the Mediterranean from Greece. So then this port city facing Greece, but also facing, uh, as we'll see, Macedonia. So in the night, a man of Macedonia, we're told, appears to Paul in a vision and beckons him to come to this province. So they set out immediately and sail northwest to Macedonia, passing through Samothrace and Neapolis in very brief stops in those places. And then they come to Philippi and spend some time there. Philippi, a Roman colony, a leading city of Macedonia... Now, just as an aside, it seems here that um, Luke joins Paul 
on this trip. Right? When he leaves Troas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are joined by Luke because we see a shift in the grammar. Shifts, the first person plural, of verse 11. So setting, well actually, really it was in verse 10, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. So he uses, he talks in this way through uh, 16 verse 7, and then uh, this first person narrative is resumed again, or 16 um, Yes, yeah, and it's resumed again in, in uh, 20, verse 5. And so Luke is sort of in and out of, of his journeys with Paul. And so Luke's giving us some actual firsthand accounts of some of these things. So it's worth, worth noting, interesting there. And then he says they stayed in Philippi for some days. And on the Sabbath day, they joined a prayer meeting by the river outside the city. It seems that there was no synagogue there in Philippi. And so there was a small gathering of women who had gathered for prayer, according to verse 13. The missionaries spoke with them. They spoke with a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. Luke describes her as a worshiper of God. This means that she had at some point converted to Judaism um, sometime prior to this encounter. And we're told that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now we're not told what Paul said, but we can piece it together based on everything else that he said in this book and know that he's speaking to her about her need to embrace the Messiah, to embrace the Christ, to embrace Jesus, the Son of God. And so in response to the Christian message, Lydia is baptized. She believes and is baptized, and then she immediately exercises some good old-fashioned Christian hospitality and invites the missionaries to stay with her for some time. Now, um, some arguments have been made from one side or the other about the significance of Lydia's household being baptized. Uh, Most seem to agree at some basic level that Lydia was, right, she was likely to be a single businesswoman who had traveled to Philippi from Thyatira. And so it's unlikely that household here is referring to her family in the sense of her children or her infants, but likely the servants or other workers that were living with her. And so it's unnecessary Uh, to seize upon this passage to say that it necessarily implies the baptism of infants. Though, to be fair, it certainly can't be argued from this passage alone that there weren't infants in the house who were baptized. But the point here, if you think about baptism um, in the book of Acts, what is the clear and explicit message of Acts regarding baptism? It's that it's disciples of Jesus who obediently follow him through baptism. And so, I want to lay the encouragement and the challenge here. If you have believed in Jesus and would call yourself his disciple, but haven't been baptized, you need to be. And while I'm at it, 
If you don't believe in Jesus, then you should. And then you should get baptized and follow him with us. But it's kind of a tangent a little bit, and that tangent is now over. Here's the takeaway. The main takeaway from this passage, and it's pretty straightforward. The sovereign Lord works. He blesses his messengers. He multiplies his churches. Look through this passage and ask yourself, who is the primary actor? Who is the primary uh, force? Is it not God? Is God not the one doing all of this? The Spirit prevented them from entering Asia. The Spirit prevented them from entering Bithynia because the Lord wanted them to preach to the Macedonians. It was the Lord who opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said, which resulted in faith and new disciples being made, both her and her household. And so we should give praise to God that He continues to build His kingdom. That here in this moment, He is directing Paul. He is leading him exactly where he needs to go. And he's working in the hearts of the people listening to him. Let's think about John Mark then, in closing. Paul separated with Barnabas over him. But that's not the end of the story. Later, when Paul is in prison in Rome, writing to the Colossians, he sends them greetings from Barnabas and Mark. He tells them that if Mark comes to them, they should receive him. Now, that may not be a glowing endorsement, but it does demonstrate that some repair had been made to Paul's relationship with these two men. But that's not the end of the story either. We should continue following the reconciling work of the Spirit all the way to the end. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul writes about Mark again. Possibly any, maybe two to five years after writing to the Colossians. And it's understood that 2 Timothy is the last epistle that Paul writes before his death. And here's how he ends the letter to Timothy. Now, Timothy wasn't present for Mark's desertion. He wasn't present uh, for the division that occurred later. But it's almost certain that he would have heard some things about the matter during his travels with Paul. And so listen to what he writes, beginning in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. How about it? Mark the deserter has become Mark the dependable. Mark the unfaithful has become Mark the useful. You know, we don't know on this side of heaven, and probably won't ever know this side of heaven, 
And who knows how long it will take us on the other side of heaven to learn. We don't know how God reconciled these two men. But He did. And so what about you? What desertions have you made in your life? What people have you let down? What failures have plagued your walk? You may not have deserted a fellow missionary out on the field, right in the middle of it, but maybe a friend. Think about it. What what shortcomings have hindered your Christian life, have hindered your faithful witness, your effective ministry? Whatever it is, is not God willing to bring about reconciliation and restoration as He did here? I expect and trust that He is. It may require some deep, humbling repentance on our part, but we can know that God is faithful and eager to bring about the unity of His people. So we see Paul and Barnabas separate, but not forever. And even in the midst of their conflict, God strengthened the churches. He brought more people into His kingdom. And now we see it advancing now, far beyond where Paul had gone before, into Macedonia. It's not all rainbows and butterflies, and we'll see that very clearly next week as Paul and Silas get arrested But God is still faithful. God is still accomplishing His purposes. God is reconciling the world to Himself. And He's reconciling His people to one another. 